Good morning, church. Man, isn't it great to know that we are no longer prisoners? Uh, Jesus Christ has set us free. Uh, That we live in Him and through Him we gain all the life we possibly could want, the blessing that we have in life. Indeed, Jesus makes all things new for each and every one of us. Amen. Man, well, I love the fact that you are here today to celebrate that risen Savior as a family of God and to encourage one another on the journey. Thanks for joining us this morning. I want to say a welcome to our guests that are here today. Thanks for joining us and being a part of our Crosspoint family this morning. Uh, our hope, of course, is if you're looking for a church home, man, we'd love for you to dig in with us and, and be a part of our family to spiritually raise your family right here with us to help share that message of Jesus Christ all around the world. There are lots of ways to get plugged in. Each and every one of us bring different gifts sets and talents to the table, and collectively, we are the body of Christ. And so come together and we share that message of Christ in lots of different ways. Check the bulletin for ways that you can get plugged in to different ministry avenues right here at Cross Point. We're going to be in John chapter 11 and 12 this morning, so I hope you've got your Bibles and will turn with me there. We'll be there in just a few moments. Uh, you know, as we dig into this, this second week in our series called Rewrite, what, what does that really mean for each and every one of us? It's the idea that Jesus Christ is rewriting our story, that indeed all the things that you used to be, the the mess-ups that you've had in your life will be totally gone when you surrender to Jesus Christ. He's going to rewrite your story. And so as we move toward Easter, which is April 1st, over these next several weeks, we're going to unpack the character and nature of Jesus Christ. Who is he and what kind of difference can he make in my life? As we move toward that uh, moment in time, I want to remind you that we've got some postcards out in our Welcome Center uh, for Easter Sunday. I want you to grab a handful of those and hand them out to your friends, family, neighbors, co-workers. Uh, this is the one time of year that most people assume they're going to be invited to a church service on Easter Sunday. And so they're ready and waiting. There are lots of folks that we all know that don't attend anywhere, and so they're just waiting for an invitation. Now's your shot, your chance uh, to get a yes to coming here uh, on Sunday morning. And Easter Sunday, April 1st, we'll start with a sunrise service. For those that want to come at 7.15, you're more than welcome. Bring your coffee with you. Uh, but we'll also have those two other services as we normally do uh, that particular day. Uh, so get out there and get, uh, get folks understanding the importance of Jesus Christ in their life and invite them to that Easter morning service right here. Today I want to begin uh, talking about the idea of trust. Because you and I have had those moments in life when we have found it difficult maybe to trust some folks that we're running with, maybe even some family members, some close friends. There have been moments where we've had to, to trust in someone else or something else. And in 1975, my family moved to Africa. We lived in a little town called Kumba, and uh, my dad was a missionary there. We all went with him because guess what? We were his family, so we got to go too. It's kind of a cool thing. I was a first grader when we moved there, and uh, I remember standing at the end of our driveway and handing out world Bible correspondence courses to the locals that were walking down, up and down the road. Uh, My dad has a picture of that somewhere, Uh, but that was a fun time. I call it my young Indiana Jones years, you know, living in Africa. But uh, dad not only taught in Kumba and preached in Kumba, he also taught in the outlying areas, and one of those villages that he went to one day uh, was Burundi. Now, what was interesting about this particular place, it's on the other side of the lake. It was only accessible, uh, the quickest way accessible would be going across the lake in a dugout canoe. Now, what that looks like basically is is a tree that's been hollowed out, and you've got a guide with you that knows exactly where he's going. He's going to to, uh, 
steer the boat the whole way, and you hope that he knows where he is going. So first trust element was my dad trusting this guide uh, not to tip over the boat and knock them into the drink. This particular lake uh, was an extinct volcano, and it was bottomless. There was uh, an interesting uh, dynamic there of the fear of water, if you've got that, and no bottom to the lake. Not only did he have to trust the dugout canoe and his guide, about halfway across the lake, he tells the story that the wildlife came to life when they saw them on the lake. And so all the monkeys and chimpanzees and the gorillas began to holler and scream because they saw them on the middle of the lake. And my dad thought it was going to be a Jesus moment, walking on water to get back (laughs) to the shore he had just come from. Uh, But he made it safely and taught the message of Jesus to, to that village that particular week. Dad had to trust a lot of different things in that story. And no doubt in your own story, there are things that you have had to trust. Because let's face it, if we're honest, sometimes it's it's hard to trust people, isn't it? And sometimes, if we're honest, it's difficult to trust God in our story. I mean, how is this all going to play out? Because what trust is, is over a period of time, you've proven yourself over and over. I'm the same person. This is how it's going to be. And you have people in your life that you trust implicitly because over a long period of time, they've been the same person over and over again. Maybe you've got your favorite type of car, whatever you drive, and you think, I'm never buying a different type of car because it's proven itself over time. There are moments when trust is revealed to us, but even in those moments, there are times in our life when things happen and we wonder, does God even hear my story? Is he there? Can I trust him to fulfill his promises? Those moments when you are still dealing with the cancer, although you have been praying for a long period of time, when you feel like you're in the middle of a marriage just doesn't want to mend. When you feel like you've got a long-term friendship, relationship with somebody and it just seems to be falling apart and nothing you do fixes anything, or maybe, maybe you realize there's more months at the end of your money and you wonder, how are we going to make ends meet? Does God even know that I'm struggling here? Does he know what I'm going through? But we're we're reminded what the writer in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all that you do and he will show you which path to take. Man, that's gospel, isn't it? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Because you and I are really good at hindsight most of the time. We can see what's right in front of us the day of most of the time, but it's difficult to look into the future. And what the writer wants to remind us of is that Jesus knows your story. He knows where it's going and how it's going to end. And so this morning as we begin to unpack this idea of trust, I'm going to give you a full sentence, but I'm going to give it to you in three different parts. And we're going to start with the idea that since God is God, You see, there is one God, and you and I are not him. Genesis 1-1, at the very front end of your Bible, says, In the beginning, God created. It was God that created out of the chaos. His spirit hovered in the darkness over the deep. It was not you and I, it was God that created. The prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 10, writes it, 
even more beautifully when he says, the Lord made the earth by his power and he preserves it by his wisdom with his own understanding. He stretched out the heavens. When he speaks in the thunder, the heavens roar with rain. He causes the clouds to rise over the earth. He sends the lightning with the rain and releases the wind from his storehouses. Isn't that beautiful? To see that we have a God who is in control, who knows your story and every other story that there is. Since God is God and since he is in control, You see, you and I live this lie. We believe we control things in our life. I mean, if you've got children, you know that's not true. God is in control, and you and I really are not. There are a couple of stories I want to look at in the Old Testament that remind us of just how much God is in control. And the first one is going to be a story that you know well. It's from the book of Job. Job, by all accounts, is a man who follows God. He, he sacrifices to God. He loves God. He wants to follow God. He does everything in his life for God's glory, according to the text. As a matter of fact, he's been blessed beyond measure. He's super comfortable. He's got lots of land, and he's got buildings. He's got herds and cattle and sheep. He's got servants that work for him. The text says that he's the wealthiest man in the area. He's got seven sons and three daughters, and Until in chapter 1, the accuser comes and knocks on heaven's door. He says, God, I want to strike a deal with you. Your your guy, Job, he he wouldn't be your guy if you took away all the comforts that he's got in life. And and God says, that's just not true. Job's my man. You can do whatever you think you want with him, just don't kill him. And so the accuser gets to work, and through the story, what we see over and over is that things are beginning to take away. He he loses real estate, he loses housing, he loses all of his flocks, his material wealth, he even loses his children, until all he's left with are the sores on his body. He sits around a fire, and with broken shards of pottery, scrapes those sores. And his wife and three friends sit around that fire with him, and they say, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job is not a man who's going to walk away from God, but he does have some questions. He wants to know where God is in his story. God, God, I trusted you, and and yet all of these things are happening to me. And he goes on and on, and they wax and wane. His friends and his wife have questions as well. Until finally, chapter 38, God has had enough. He says, Job, you think you're a man. Prepare yourself for some questions. He says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Speak up if you, if you know where you were in that moment. Where were you when I laid out the stars across the sky as a large blanket? Could you find yourself in that moment? Where were you when I told the ocean, this is as far as you will go, and you will go no further? Where were you? And by the end of God's monologue, it says that Job simply covered his mouth and said, I will speak no more. Because Job realizes God is in control, and Job is not. He has a creator. Job is the created. There's another story in the book of Daniel 
as equally mesmerizing. By Daniel, the Israelites have left the promised land. They have been taken to captivity by the nation of Babylon. And there's a guy by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar who wants to rule the world. And all of these Israelites, those Jews, are in captivity. Several of them have been selected to serve in the court of the king. And through some advising, the king makes a decision that he wants to build an idol to his God. And so it says that out of gold they fashioned an idol that was, get this, nine stories tall. Now this room is about two stories tall. Nine stories tall, and it was nine stories wide. You could see that thing like AT&T Stadium on the horizon. It was big. And Nebuchadnezzar said, listen, I've got a band, I've got an orchestra, and everybody listen up. The minute you hear the band begin to play, I want you to take a knee and bow before my God represented in this idol. And so the band plays and everyone takes a knee except for three brothers, brothers in arms, who've already made a decision that God is the one that they're going to trust and no one else. But they're in the the court of the king. And so they're brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. And, and, and the king says, listen, guys, I know you guys are from out of town. I know you may not have understood the dialect that we speak here, but I, I'm going to explain it one more time. I'm going to give you one more shot. So the band's going to play, and you're going to take a knee, and you're going to bow before the, the God that we have here in my country. And in chapter 3 and verse 16, these three guys put all of their trust in God. And they say, O great king, we understand what you're asking of us, and our God is able to save us. And the king says, you don't understand. You see that fire over there, the furnace? I'm going to throw you in there if you don't bow down. And he says, O great king, Not only do we have a God that has the power to save us, but even if he chooses not to save us, we will not bow down. He is the God. Man, I I hope if I'm ever faced with that situation, that's exactly how I'll, I'll state it. It's an incredible moment in time where three guys made a decision, whatever happens in my life, I'm going to trust God. He's fulfilled his promise all through history, and he's not going to change now. Even if it doesn't go how I hope it will go, I will never bow before another God. There is only one God. In ancient Hebrew, the word that they use there for God is El Elyon. Some translate that as the great and mighty God, but what it can be translated as is the God who is in control. In other words... My God actually controls your God. He is the only one that is true and real. And since they put their trust in Yahweh, they worshiped him. There are two stories in the New Testament where two different women, on two different occasions, wash Jesus' feet with their hair. That's an interesting way to show honor, isn't it? I mean, one wanted to do it because she was forgiven much. The other one, because Jesus had done an unexpected favor for their family. 
And we see in John chapter 12 how the story begins to unfold. There's a a dinner in Jesus' honor at a house. And there are lots of people there celebrating, and they're sitting around a table. They're laying, reclining at the table with their feet extended away from the table. And into the room walks this woman by the name of Mary. Mary has a jar of perfume in her hand. As she walks over to Jesus, not caring who's in the room, she opens the bottle and pours it on Jesus' feet. And the text says the aroma, the beautiful aroma, filled the room. And then like any Jewish woman in the moment, she took off her head covering and unfolded her hair and dried and washed Jesus' feet that the perfume had just been placed on. She absolutely trusts Jesus in this moment. She doesn't care who's in the room, who's at the table, who's going to make fun at her, who's going to call her out for loosing her hair. All she wants to do is worship Jesus. She trusts Jesus. But to understand her trust in Jesus, we have to go back to chapter 11 to understand why she ever doubted Jesus. And that's where we'll end our text this morning. John chapter 11 and verse 3. What we discover in chapter 11 is there are these siblings, Martha, Mary, and a guy named Lazarus. You know where this story is going. You've heard it before if you've been raised in church. And Lazarus is very sick, but Jesus and his disciples are in another town doing ministry. They're not there right now. Lazarus is so sick that that he's possibly going to die. Things don't look good. And verse 3, our text begins. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Not my brother, but your very dear friend. You see, Jesus is super close with this family. He's tight with them. They've heard him speak and preach before miracles. They've sat with him around the table. They've exchanged stories over a campfire at night. They know each other intimately. Jesus and this family are very close. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Remember verse 5, we're going to come back to that. Jesus stayed where he was for the next two days. Jesus is away when he gets this message about his friend being on a deathbed. Jesus loved this family. It's important for us to realize that the writer, John, puts this verse in the text so we, as the reader, would understand how close he was with this family. And although he loved them deeply... He knew God's glory was more important. Lazarus ends up dying. And by verse 17, what we realize is that when Jesus finally gets back to where their home is, Lazarus has been dead for four days. He's been in the tomb. It's over. Jesus, where were you? The question for us as we read this story this morning is, how do you react when God makes you wait? 
what's going on in your heart, in your gut, in your mind when you are looking for the mate that you're going to share your life with and you've done everything possible and that person, Mr. or Mrs. Wright, just isn't showing up, God, how much longer do I need to wait to find that person or maybe in your own life you haven't been able to conceive a child and you wonder how long, God, are we going to have to wait? Maybe in your own life you're, you're battling with your calling what am I supposed to do, God? What is, what, is, what is my job? What should I do with my career? What ministry should I get involved in? And you're drawing a blank. Nothing seems to, to emerge to the front. Maybe in your life you've been looking for a loving, welcoming, healthy church. And if today's your first day at Crosspoint, let me tell you, this group of believers is every bit of that. This is a beautiful church. Maybe you're thinking, man, I could get a leg up if I can just get this one loan paid off and you're saving that money, but then the kids get sick, the car needs fixed, you need a new fridge, and all of a sudden that extra money vanishes and you're thinking, I don't know how much longer I can hold out financially. Or maybe the waiting is when you're waiting for that doctor to give you that cancer-free report. You're thinking... I don't know how much longer I can do the, the chemo or the pills or the regiment. And by verse 21 in our story, Martha approaches Jesus, who is now present. And she says, Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would still be living. Where were you? Why did you make us wait? And there are tears and sadness, and anger. It's the one story in the New Testament with the shortest verse in the New Testament where it reminds us that Jesus cried. He himself was moved in the experience. But remember, the writer wants you to read verse 5, realizing that Jesus' love for you is deep and wide despite what you're going through in life. No, no matter what you're dealing with, Jesus Christ will never, ever leave you. It may not be on your timetable, but he has not gone anywhere. He fulfills his promises. And have you ever felt like God didn't show up when you needed him? In your own life, in your own story. And maybe you come home from work every single day and stand toe-to-toe with your life partner and there's just conflict and arguing and bitterness and you're thinking, I must be in the worst marriage in the world. God, where are you? Or maybe you sit on the edge of your bed and watch your child suffer from cancer and you wish to God you could take that from them. And they're going through all of the treatments and there's been lots of prayer, but still no healing. And you wonder, God, where are you? Maybe you've got a lifelong friend and there's, there's a relationship tension there with that friend. Suddenly something's happened and it's very different and you wonder, is this salvageable? It doesn't look like it. And you wonder in that moment, God, where are you in this moment when I need you the most? Or maybe as you pray for relief from that addiction that you suffer from 
You swear I will never be here again. I will never do this again. I'll don't, I won't go to that website again. I, I won't partake of this particular thing. I won't hang out with this one friend. And two weeks later, you find yourself in the same boat, and you wonder, does God hear my prayer? Where are you when I need you for strength and guidance? Or maybe it's the last time that you and your spouse will sit at that, that dining room table and look at the budget realizing we've done this for 10 months and I don't think we can go another one before we file bankruptcy. God, where are you when we need you most? The question is, as we reflect on the stories that we've looked at this morning, is are you willing to worship a God who will make you wait? Can you trust a God whose timetable may look totally different than your own? Because see, as we look at chapter 11 in our story, and Martha's asking where Jesus had been, he had come four days too late. Jesus waits four days in our story so that the entire town will know without a shadow of a doubt that he is indeed the Messiah, I am the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Even death cannot disobey me. Come forth, Lazarus. And we know in our story that Lazarus is resurrected from the dead, and it's through Jesus' words and his power and his energy that he makes all things new. In our story, he appears to be indifferent when actually he is expressing genuine love, not only for this family that he loves so deeply and dearly, but for the entire town to know that he is the anointed one of God. And verse 5 is a reminder for you and for me. It exists as a reminder of love. I mean, isn't it such a blessing to know when unexpected things happen in your life that we can expect a loving Savior to walk right beside us, to lift us up, to give us the Holy Spirit within us, to to remind us that we are not alone in this moment. So the call this morning is for you and I to realize that since God is God and since he is in control, that we should trust the one who knows the entire story. Not just what we can see, he knows everything. Wherever you find yourself this morning, know that he walks with you. Because see, the truth is, church, we we live in real life. We don't live in a Disney movie. In the Middle East, there are still Christians who are being beheaded for their faith. Drunk drivers still kill people. Companies are still downsizing. Cancer still leaves an empty chair at the dinner table. But what you and I need to determine this morning and lean into is the idea that God is still God. No matter what's happening in this world, in the chaos, God is still God. He is in control and we are called to trust on him. And in our text in verse 5, we're reminded, and Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And if you've got your own Bible with you, I want to challenge you in that verse to write your name in. And Jesus loved you. 
Even in your pain and your suffering where you find yourself out right now, some things in this life just don't come together. Sometimes there is an empty chair, but it's a reminder of what we talked about in 1 Peter a few weeks ago, that this world is not our home. Our home is with Jesus Christ. We're just passing through this life. And I can't wait to get where there is no more sin, no more death, no more cancer, no negativity, only the Son of God putting his arms around me and you, loving us for never doubting and trusting him always. You see, we've experienced that here at Crosspoint, that trust element. It's hard to believe this Easter will be in this location six years. Amazing. We started out up on I-30 Turnpike, sold that building and journeyed a little ways before we found this location and built this building. And guess what? God was in us in that wilderness moment. He never left us. We had questions. We wondered what and how and when, and he knew. But because you were faithful to him, he came through in the story. In the time that we've been here, we've lost a lot of older Christian members who've gone on to be with Jesus. And in those sorrowful times, he never left us. He's been with us. There have been unexpected loss of staff here at Cross Point. And even in those confusing moments, God never left us. His son loves us and walks with us. I mean, what does your trust journey look like for you? How far are you willing to put your life in the hands of a God who truly loves you? Because see, our testing and our trials, that's what builds trust. Over a period of time, we look back and we see the promises that God continues to fulfill as we walk through this life together. We're reminded that the richest, lushest vegetation grows in the valleys, not on the mountaintop. And so it's in those moments where we experience life, sometimes in tough ways, that God grows us. And we lean into his faith and his love for us always. I mean, if John in chapter 11 had written about your valley that you're experiencing right now, he would have included verse 5 for you too. And Jesus loved you. I want you to help me, church, here for just a moment. In just a few seconds, I'm going to ask you to participate with me repeating that one verse, helping me say that one verse. But when we get to the blank, I want you to put your name in that blank and shout it out as if you are proud to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that you believe in the promises that God has made to you in your life. He walks with you, whether it's raining or sunny. Whatever's happening in your life, he will never leave you. So help me out here on the count of three. One, two, three. And Jesus loved Tim. He does. You see, your, your setback that you're experiencing right now is merely a set up for God to be glorified. It's a moment for Satan to take a step back, for him to realize that his days are numbered. You see, that resurrected king is resurrecting me in my life. How about you? 
He's coming down from the mountain to help us out of our valley. He's never left us. He will make all things new for you, I promise. He has shown consistency in that throughout his entire story. Jesus loves you. We have a God that loves us so very much that he sent his son to die on a cross so that we could have relationship with our creator. We could have that intimacy yet once again. And so you and I are called this morning to trust God with our story. Although we can't see the end, he has. And he's walking beside us, encouraging us on the journey, moving us along, reminding us that he indeed loves us beyond measure. No matter where we've been, what we've done, who we claim to be, in him we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we will never be any less. I'm going to invite the praise team back to the stage at this time. And uh, as we sing this song, our shepherds are going to gather along the wall of this room. My guess is if we, if we talk about life circumstances and trust issues, maybe there's some of us in this room who've hit a speed bump and we've pulled back maybe a little bit from following God as closely as we used to. And so I want to encourage you as we sing this song to go find one of our shepherds. Let them pray over you. Let them pray for you in your moment of pain and hurt, in your moment of suffering, in your valley, to be reminded that he's not left you, that he walks with you and wants the very best for you. Don't walk away without doing that this morning. Or maybe today is the day that you say, you know what? I've never made that public confession of Jesus Christ. I want to be baptized this morning into his name to be raised a brand new creation, allowing him to make all things new in your life. Man, don't leave here without doing that. Let him bless you in ways that maybe you've never even thought of before. There is a king. His name is Jesus. And he loves you. Let's stand together.